Join Greenbook at the 2024 Insight Innovation Exchange Conference Series. IIEX is your global hub for connections, inspiration, and innovative solutions in market research. Visit greenbook.org events to learn more about events in Asia, the Americas, and Europe. Use the code PODCAST for 20% off general admission on all upcoming events. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another edition of the Green Book Podcast. I'm your host today, Karen Lynch, and I'm so excited to be talking to this guest for a lot of reasons. I think I first met Nikki Lavoy in... 2017 at a Qual 360 event where she just captured captured my heart as the chair of the event who was not only engaging but incredibly personable and warm and wonderful and smart as all be. So at that point, you know, we we introduced ourselves to each other and I think we've had a fast friendship ever since. So world, I am so happy to introduce you to Nikki Lavoy. If you haven't already met her and you don't already know how fabulous she is, this episode will certainly bring you to that place. Nikki, thank you for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. And I am as happy to speak to you as it sounds like you are to speak to me. I've been really looking forward to this episode for many weeks now. So I'm really happy that we're kicking it off. Very cool. Very cool. And um, I know it's like mutual, mutual admiration society. So by way of introduction, I will let you introduce yourself, but so that everybody who is listening understands. Uh, Nikki is the EVP of Strategy and Innovation at Savanta, and you can tell us a bit more about Savanta. But I knew her when she was the CEO of MindSpark, a you know, research consultancy. She's had quite a career before joining Savanta. She's also been very involved in SMR. As you may know, she was our previous vice president council member with a wonderful history of volunteering for a lot of organizations. She has been an IIEX event chair more times than I can count. And Nikki, I can't do your career more justice than you can. So please tell the audience a little bit more about yourself. Oh, gosh. Well, I will start by where I'm at today. So as you mentioned, EVP of Innovation and Strategy at Savanta. Um, so I would say a lot of people ask me, what does that mean? So I'll just say a tiny bit about what that means. And I would say, on the one hand, um, is the innovation piece. So that's why I get to do really great things like go to IIEX events, because my whole goal is to understand what's innovative in the industry, what's up and coming. Green Book is a really great source for learning about that. And then I take that information back home to Savanta and say, what can we be doing differently? And on the strategy piece, it's then figuring out how do we communicate and how do we get the word out about all of the different kinds of new products that we want to be launching and ways that we want to be serving our customers. And yeah, I came into this role after having sold my company, MindSpark Research International, to Savanta in February 2022, exactly 20 days before having a baby, (laughs) which was a whirlwind all on its own. And yeah, so I started MindSpark in Paris, where I'm based almost 10 years ago now. I cannot even remember it anymore, but somewhere around that time. So got moved over to Paris in 2011, started a company shortly thereafter, and then sold it some years later. So, and now here we are together. I think what I love about that story also is a lot of people start consultancies and and then there's the thought of the sale and can I really sell my organization when I am sort of its own IP? So talk to me a little bit about what that process was like for you as a founder. Again, not part of our question brief friends, but you know, what was that like for you and, and the sort of gratification that did come from it? Is it worth kind of pursuing that sale in the end? 
Yeah. So it's actually something that I had thought about long before I even entered into the selling process with MindSpark. And it's something that I really wanted to make sure I was able to get away from, especially with qualitative research. I mean, consultancies in general, yes, you've hit the nail on the head. They want the consultant. It's your IP. It's your brain they're after. And then with qualitative research tends to be the same. It's like, well, I've developed a rapport with this moderator. I know their quality of work. I know their deliverables and outputs, or they know my business objectives. So I always want Nikki on every project. So I kind of worked for the first couple of years within MindSpark to establish a lot of client relationships and develop some strong bonds, not only with clients, but also with suppliers around the industry so that I could really start to offer global, really global, really multicultural kind of international studies at a high level of quality. And I I realized pretty early on, I said, if I don't hire some people, this is going to be like the Nikki Lavoie show. And that is not what I wanted. And the other thing too, is as much as I love research, this is going to be maybe a weird thing to say out loud. I actually love thinking about research and learning about research and trying to understand how to apply different types of research in different circumstances more than I love being a researcher. So I I felt, you know, after MindSpark started to take off, I really felt the the kind of drain of being in the field all the time and constantly moderating. And I was just thinking, yeah, but when I'm moderating, I don't get to think about this and I don't get to read about that and I don't get to explore about this. So yeah, I, I really made the conscious decision quite early on in the MindSpark journey to, to bring people on board onto my team that had the same ethos as I did around being an ethnographically oriented qualitative shop you know, and everybody says focused on empathy and etc. But I think what makes different houses different is how you approach empathy. So similar approach to empathy, similar approach to, you know, being observation first, um, ask questions after, and then just sort of, you know, copy pasted my brain, my brain kind of system and my brain DNA on top of other people and said, okay, this is how this is the mind spark way. This is how we operate. So that if and when the time came when either I wanted to sell, I was forced to sell, or, you know, any any kind of conditions dictated some type of exit from my company, it wouldn't necessarily be, you know, without Nikki, there's nothing. And so that worked out to my advantage. So I'm, I'm happy that I decided to do that. Yeah. And, and I love what you mentioned about kind of the the mind shift that you went through, because I experienced something similar, right? You and I have this in common prior to joining Green Book when I was just like, I felt like I was done executing research and I needed something different that allowed me to think more holistically about all of it because my brain was on fire for all of that stuff for the entirety of my career. But when you're in the trenches in the field, you're not taking that step back, right? You're doing the best thing you can do for the project that you're working on. And it's been wonderful for me to sort of shift at this stage of my career. And I imagine it's been the same for you to just start using those critical thinking skills, strategic thinking skills on a whole new level. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's, it's, really funny because I, I really focus probably the second half of the MindSpark journey on things like business growth, strategic growth, marketing plans. And so then now today, when I, I meet people who maybe saw my name somewhere and they're like, oh, Nikki, you're that qualitative researcher. And I'm like, I have not done an interview, a qualitative interview in some number of years now. So like, I'm really glad that that reputation still sticks around. But yeah, I, I really deliberately tried to engage myself in those things that that piqued my curiosity that, you know, being a, a field moderator wouldn't have let me do. Yeah, well, that's why you are a mover and shaker in the insights industry overall, right? Because you are somebody that has that foundation in research, which is you know, just priceless when it comes to the next phase. And you're somebody who's super tapped into the industry. I mean, IIX 
attendees in general tend to be people with that growth mindset and with that level of thinking. So I feel like when I'm at our events in particular, I'm always with people who I'm like, oh, yes, they see it like we see it, which is constantly putting together the the big picture and connecting all of the dots to help them do their jobs better and to go to that strategic direction and the recommendations that you can give to either an end client or an internal client or a C-level executive who's waiting to hear from you or or whatever. So it's the people that are really moving things forward in the industry. That's why I love where I landed so very much. And we are all very lucky that you've landed there. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. You know, it's so funny because one of these days I'll stop saying it's new. It's only been about 16 months now. Not that I'm counting, but I just did the math yesterday because I'm like, how long have I been here? It's 16 months. Hasn't been that long. One of these days I'll stop counting and thinking that I've just made this surreal career change, but every day glad that I did. In another example of our parallel lives, you have been doing the Green Book thing for 16 months and I've been doing the Savannah thing for 18 months and I'm doing the same thing. I keep being like, yeah, people are like, how's the job going? And I'm like, well, I'm, I'm still, you know, finding my footing. I'm like, wait, I've been here a year and a half. I'm actually doing some, <laughs> some, some things here. <laughs> I know. When we, get to, when we get to five years in our current situation, we'll like raise a glass and say, look, we made it five years in this new role. So that'll be a super fun day. And I can't wait, actually. <laughs> so not that that'll be the next time we, we raise a glass to one another because I'm sure our, our paths will will cross in person soon enough. Nikki, I want to I want to bring the conversation to to some of your background because one of the areas that you landed in sort of as a sweet spot, I think, is the world of usability research. And I, I bring that up because back in the day at Qual360, which attracts a lot of usability researchers for one reason or another, I'm not quite sure why, what what was happening in that space for that particular event. But a lot of qualitative researchers who went there are in the world of UX research, and that's the context with which I met you. So talk to me a little bit about how your qualitative career brought you to the UX space and really being an expert in that world. Yeah. So it's not as glorious of a story as I wish it was, but it is a funny one, which I feel like all of us have loads of in this industry, which is... You know, when I had started MindSpark and I saw it, as many of us do, especially women, if you're dealing with imposter syndrome for a long time, even after employees, I was like, who would want to hire me? Like had Twitter on the roster, had Facebook on the roster. And I was like, I'm a tiny little, nobody wants to. And it's like, okay, at some point. So was doing a lot of market research with a lot of the consumer marketing and insights teams at some of these bigger brands and tech companies. And then what was happening is a lot of my clients were changing roles internally at their orgs, or they were making lateral moves to other organizations and they were moving into user research roles and then they would call me up and they'd say nikki you know that thing that you did like two months ago with the diaries and the idis can you just can you do that again like i'll send you a brief and i'm like yeah sure and they send me the brief and it says user research and then it says you know stakeholder you know this research is part of a design sprint and stakeholders are the product engineers and the first couple of times this happened i went oh sorry can't help you with this i'm not a user researcher and every time fortunately because i had really great clients they called me back and they said yeah no not going to take that as an excuse you need to you need to submit for this brief they were like, it's the same thing. And before anyone listening, you know, does a giant eye roll and goes, it's not the same thing and shakes an angry fist. 
there are similarities and differences. I'm sure we'll get into that in this episode. But at the time, I mean, what was really important for my clients who were calling me was, I want a pretty similar methodology. I want pretty similar quality of work. I want pretty similar outputs. So when they said it's the same thing, they really meant in those particular aspects. And so I finally said, okay, fine, I'll take your money. (laughs) I'll do this research. And it turned out it was pretty similar. So it's like all of the stuff I had been working towards in terms of trying to become, you know, a high quality, qualitative researcher really lent itself very well to working with clients who were, you know, finding themselves in user research functions. So that's kind of how it happened. And then I would say after that happened initially and and started to happen more and more often, I also just started to realize there was a couple of things I just liked more about working with user research clients for reasons which I can get into or not, as you determine, um, hostess of this episode. Um, <laughs> and then and then I decided to just kind of make the pivot. So we actually positioned ourselves as a qual-led user research agency, and, and that worked really well for us. So, so yeah, even now at Savanta, I mean, working on innovation and strategy, I talk about all kinds of products across the Savanta landscape, but UX is definitely one of them. So working and building that team, training people up, working with some of my MindSpark colleagues who are now over here at, at Cementa with me. So it's pretty great. What I think is so interesting about that story is I had a very similar sort of moment in time. And I, I forget when it was. It was probably around 20, 2010, maybe even a little bit earlier than that. But there was a client of mine who had an e-commerce. It was actually a, pub, a, a media company, but they had an e-commerce site as well. And they wanted me to do user research, but we weren't calling it that. We were just calling it market research with shoppers, online shoppers. So we hadn't made that kind of cognitive switch to this is user research. This is just shoppers who are shopping online, going to an interface. And we were doing a lot of, in the in the conversation, we were tracking the heat mapping from some of the platforms that we were using at that point to do online research. And then, you know, shortly thereafter, somebody had asked me about user research. And I was like, well, I'm not really a user researcher. And there was this moment of, wait, are you or are you not? Because you do research with users. But we hadn't quite gotten into the space yet of of this world that we're talking about. And I remembered at the time thinking, I'm going to go to some UX specific meetings, events, a local Connecticut chapter of like the UXPA or something that existed at that time. And I was sitting there with my eyebrows like a little furrowed with the conversation. I was like, this we're, we're just all doing qualitative research. Why are we calling it different things? What's going on here? So it took some time for me to get my head around it. And of course, most of my clients ended up staying in the CPG space, not necessarily the tech space. And I think that was where it dissected on some level is people have this belief that user research is has to be technical and digital and online. And that's not quite the case, Nikki, is it? No. Yeah. I mean, I, I love kind of that story about, you know, thinking about it and going, wait a minute, I did do research. And, you know, I hear whether it's in face-to-face conversations or around the internet on LinkedIn and comments and posts and things like that. I hear all kinds of things like, particularly from market researchers, by the way, where they say, but I've been doing walkthroughs of websites for 20 years and we never called it market research or we never called it user research. And I think the funny thing about that is Yes, we didn't call it necessarily user research, and there were plenty of us who were doing things that were considered user research without knowing it. At the same time, what ended up happening in parallel is that there were these tech and software companies who were coming up, and rather than focusing on 
the branding and communications piece of things. So what are we going to say about our product and how are we going to resonate with our potential clients? You know, what messaging is, are we going to use? What RTBs are we going to put out there? How are we going to segment our audience to reach them more effectively? You know, how are we going to do the pricing optimization, feature optimization, all of that kind of stuff. Instead of that, they were literally just saying, let's make the product the best it can possibly be. And in order to do that, let's explore all of the various touch points that people have with our product. And we will explore all of those touch points and optimize them. So in a sense, there was this sort of natural progression where I think user research became a thing, became a specific thing. And it's sort of, I see it as sort of a specialization. So are there people within market research who are doing user research? Absolutely 100%. But if you have only done, or if you've been doing market research and you've been doing a lot of qual, and then you want to go work for, let's say, a Google, and you say, well, I I can definitely do this, they're going to ask you questions like, so how long does it take you to recruit, moderate, and produce a deliverable on these IDIs? Because I need it done. I need everything done in a, in a two-week design sprint. And when's the last time you've created deliverables designed for an engineer to read? And are you able to you know, put tech specs in here to help inform you know, what the engineers and the product devs should be fixing as a result of this user research feedback? And the answer, in many cases, is no, I can't do any of those things. So I think there, there are actually quite a lot of very important differences that are easy to group in with tech and digital because that's a lot of how it got started. But realistically, user research is, is really an exploration of you know the behaviors, preferences, habits, et cetera, of touch points between a person and a product. And market research is the product, but also the messaging, but also the branding, but also understanding the market. So it's, it's a lot broader. And I think there are definitely use cases where having that more function-specific expertise becomes valuable and important, and user research is one of those. Let's talk, I love that, thank you, because that's exactly the type of kind of conversation I wanted to bring to our audience to help them just gain their knowledge of the different nuances that we're talking about here. So let's also talk about UX, the user experience, and what user research is in the context of the entirety, because you mentioned design sprints. There's a lot more going on in the world of UX than there is just the the UX research component of it. How does it work? Yeah. So, I mean, I think an organization that prioritizes user research is going to be an organization that typically has a number of dispersed teams focused on all different sort of aspects of of a product. So in this case, let's go ahead and take a digital product as an example, noting that it doesn't always have to be digital. But let's say that you've got an app. You might have, let's say it's a banking app. You might have one team that is focused specifically on account transfers within that app, making sure that every time you want to move money, it happens seamlessly. The new account balance update shows up on the on the screen, no errors. If you're trying to move things to an external account, this is how you do it. This is the information you need to enter. There's no mistakes when you go to enter it, no bugs when you go to enter that information, the transfer happens smoothly. So you can imagine there's an entire team of people who are working on making sure that the app functions correctly, making sure that this bank talks to that bank or that this API talks to that API, as well as all of the things like the colors of the button, the language being used on the screen, is everything clear, is everything easy to understand. So you've got an entire team focused on that. Meanwhile, you might have another team 
that is focused specifically on, I don't know, investing. Maybe as part of the banking app, there's something that links to the New York Stock Exchange and gives you the updates every day and allows you to kind of put money in different stock funds here and there and to kind of track your portfolio and see how it's progressing and make changes to that. That's going to be an entirely different team focused on entirely different things, but within the same umbrella, you know, under the same umbrella, the same brand, the same product, the same service, arguably. And so user research realistically, or user experience realistically, is the attention to how someone experiences a product. And so organizations who prioritize that are going to be honing in on all of the different touch points that one can experience when they're you know, involved or using a product and making sure that those are as seamless as possible. So, you know, sometimes you'll be like, I'm trying to book a a flight on Air France app, for example, and it's impossible. Okay, just kidding. That doesn't happen. It happens (laughs) on the website. It happens on the website. Air France, if you're hearing me, you need user research, call me. Vous pouvez m'appeler. Je suis là. Um, (laughs) Anyway. (laughs) No, but seriously, it's impossible to book a flight on their website. (laughs) It's impossible. I'm, I'm trying not to laugh really loud into my microphone. It's just hilarious. I love it. I love it. Um, I want to. I want to go back to something that you were saying, which I think is really interesting to me. Is you know you're talking about the different teams, and you know there's these product research teams, right, or these product product management teams. Which for those of us who have a historical marketing research background, we have brand managers, and it's different because these are branded products. So how did they how do all of these departments work together to kind of share knowledge in your experience because you have if you if I'm thinking about a banking app right so Chase I'm a I'm a Chase customer uh, you know there's the Chase branding that has to be in the experience and represented in the experience but I'm sure there's an app product manager I'm sure there's a website product manager and yet they all have to cross collaborate with kind of the marketing insights and the user research insights. How does that all come together within an organization? You are forcing me to open a can of worms right now. (laughs) I am, I am. (laughs) And that can of worms is to say, I'm not sure that they do collaborate. (laughs) They definitely should. I can tell you from my personal real life lived experience that I have been engaged um, and commissioned to work on a market research study and having already been involved, and this is for a big tech company who shall not be named, and having already been involved with their user research team and their user researchers as well, we said, I specifically said, And if we come up with, you know, as we're testing the language here, you know, as we're doing a walkthrough around the app and we're testing the language here, if there's anything that comes up from a user experience perspective, you know, for example, a button's not working or, or somebody says, raises, oh, I I keep trying to do this task and I'm never able to get it done. Or I keep, I, for some reason, I expect this content to be over here. I don't know why, just naturally, and it isn't. What do you want us to do with that information? Do you want us to put, you know, a little section at the end that just says, you know, like UX recommendations, or do you want us to write up a a shorter separate document? And they said, ignore it. It's not, it's not our, it's not on our remit. And they said, if you put anything UX related in our report, we're just going to take it out. So don't bother doing the analysis. So there are some organizations like Netflix where that's not the case. They've actually pulled their user research and their CMI folks under the same umbrella. There are some, I think, in, I think it tends to be more common in the startup universe to have anyone who can do any kind of research kind of 
grouped in together because it is so essential to have that sort of cross-functional learning. There is so much opportunity for improvement when you're testing marketing and UX stuff comes up or you're testing UX stuff and people are going, yeah, I know the button says this, but this gives me these feelings. You know, then you're supposed to go, all right, well, then whoever wrote this copy needs to, you know, rethink this. But it doesn't happen as often as we would hope that it it would. And I think it's one of those things where I'm sure you have seen, and I'm sure much of the industry has seen and heard about all of the tech layoffs. And very heavily impacted by those tech layoffs is the UX research community. So they've been they've been hit particularly hard. And so, you know, I think one potential silver lining, because there's really nothing really great about the idea of a lot of people losing their jobs. One potential silver lining out of all of this is I think it's going to force organizations to have to kind of bridge that gap between functions. So brand is doing research over here and product teams are doing research over there. And you're going to have to start, you know, sharing that budget. You're going to have to start sharing those findings back and forth because you don't have the same bandwidth and the same, you know, amount of people or the same amount of money to get things done that you did before. And, and frankly, it should have always been done like that. So... Yeah, I, I love that kind of point you're raising about, you know, hands are going to be forced on some level. But but it also has me wondering why in the world would a company that has a product choose to let go of sort of the UX researchers? Because quite frankly, without iterative product design and that feedback that needs to go into product improvement, they're never going to find greater success when budgets start getting pushed. So is that just the age-old research question manifesting in a different way? Or is there a reason? Is it because of the tools that are making it you know, easier for UX researchers, for instance, to do more with less? Or is it because there's just so many options available for contract that they don't need full-service you know, employees? What's your take on that? It's all of those things. That's what I would say. I would say that the ever sneaky democratization of research around the corner um, is, is plays a big role in it. And I remember the very first SMR Congress that I ever went to, I think was in 2010. And I remember there being a session because SurveyMonkey had just launched Mm, and everybody was up in arms about (laughs) DIY research and how it was going to take all of our jobs. I mean, watch out AI. We've already been around this block. a couple times. (laughs) So, so people were like, Oh, I'm not going to have a job anymore because SurveyMonkey and it's like democratizing research. And like, I don't know, that was over a decade ago and we're still here. So that's a good sign. But I do think it has impacted the user research community differently, the idea of democratization, because, and I want to say it's for both good and bad reasons. So if I think about my days being really focused on market research and working with CMI teams, if they lost their researchers, they would probably just stop doing research. They might be able to do a couple of things, like maybe if they had a tracker and that was done with an agency, or if they had some budget left over, they might outsource to an agency, but they wouldn't do as much in-house stuff um, as they did. And I think the reason for that is because the researchers within CMI teams always were seen as sort of the voice of the consumer, the experts in terms of the research. And even if people were observing, you know, I'm coming for the focus groups or I'm, I'm getting a readout of the, of the survey data, it was very much that they were observing. On the user research side, 
one thing that I think is really great is that there tends to be, not always, but there is, I think, more propensity for greater involvement from non-researchers. So definitely not higher up stakeholders. I hear all the time the same complaints about them on the user research side as we have on the market research side, which is I can't even get them to pay attention to this research that they just commissioned and they make decisions in the other direction anyway. But you do have engineers, devs, and other folks who will be watching those interviews or they'll come and they'll sit in on some sessions and they will learn you know, lots of things. And that is great. And then the flip side is when an organization needs to make budget cuts and they decide to, you know, cut some headcount, they oftentimes cut the researchers because the product devs and the designers, particularly UX and UI designers, tend to feel like they can do the research themselves. And in fairness, it's probably because they've watched a whole heck of a lot of it. It's not because they've just, you know, watched one YouTube video on how to moderate an IDI. It's because they've probably sat through hours and hours and hours of IDIs and they go, okay, come on, I can do this. Now, the extent to which they can actually do it to a degree of quality and then also distill things down into actionable insights, I don't know. But I think that is part of why UX research has been hit so hard is that it's this sort of double pronged attack of there are so many more tools now that allow for people to do things themselves. And research isn't seen as so much of an expertise on the user research side as it is on the CMI side. Well, and I think that's, you know, largely driven by what the objectives are, what you're looking for, right? With so much CMI work, you really have to be skilled as a researcher to either probe at the right places or ladder, you know, ladder up to higher emotional end benefits and things like that. Whereas I think my perception is user research is much more pragmatic. You know, we're really trying, we're not necessarily trying to get to how people feel, Right. It, yes, of course, we want to understand if there are emotional pain points that are going to either disrupt the user or put off the user if it's something jarring or frustrating. We want to uncover those, but we it's really quite practical. Like I get frustrated because of this reason. Like the, we don't really have to get too far beyond that because a negative experience with an interface is a negative experience and just fix it. So I think that there's some difference there. There's some nuance. And, and that's part of why. I don't want to say, you know, anybody can be a user researcher because I don't believe that's true, but it's a little easier for people to feel confident that they, you know, might be stepping into that without the training, the vast training that comes from the sort of CMI side of things. Does that make sense to you or am I just, you know... No, 100%. And I would say taking that one step further, and I think I I say this sometimes, and sometimes user researchers get really defensive about it, but I I challenge, I've asked people to challenge me on it and no one has taken me up. I think taking what you've said a step further, user research also tends to be less rigorous. So they actually have, and it's not for all types of depth interviews, um, but for certain types of interviews, uh, particularly usability walkthroughs and things like that, there is actually a, a scale which shows you at which point you are no longer learning new things from each new interviews. And it's around five. So whereas, you know, a consumer insight person might be like, we need six interviews per segment. Right. And we've got four segments. So you're like, we're doing 24 interviews today. And, you know, the user research folks might be like, 
you know, let's just get our main user base in and do the five. So it's a lot easier to distill five interviews worth of unstructured data than it is to distill 24 interviews worth of unstructured data. Although, hello, AI, let's fix that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but <laughs> I am not in any way saying that you don't need to be intelligent or that you don't need to have, you know, all, all kinds of training or that it's super easy. I'm just saying that, you know, there are challenges on the UX side that don't exist necessarily on the CMI side, which cause them to need to move at a faster pace and need to have smaller sample sizes and need to draw conclusions in a more tactical manner from less data points than, you know, the CMI decision makers are like, I won't even budge until I see an, a percentage with two decimal points after uh, to make sure it's very, very precise. And, and the user researchers are like, you know, we don't care if it's precise, it's left, right or center, which direction. Yeah, let's let's talk a little bit about what you just brought up too is you know, we know that there are unique skills and you even mentioned some of them earlier in this conversation, right, where they have to be able to report findings that are much more technically savvy. So, obviously that or you know, maybe their reader is an engineer that's working on the product product design and development and improvement. So, they have to be able to communicate in a different way. That is a skill set that many traditional, you know, market researchers don't bring to the bring to the table or just consumer insights professionals. So there is a technical expertise that is needed that is probably very specific for what types of products they're working on. What other skills, the need for speed is another one that I'd say based on our conversation, they have to move faster. So if you're a researcher that, you know, really loves to unpack all of those unstructured answers and spend time with them and incubate on them and mull them over to be able to write a finely crafted insightful summary, this may not be the space for you, right? But what are some other skills other than maybe those two does a UX researcher really need to bring to the table? So technical expertise, the ability to to move in a very agile way. Are there others? Yeah, I would say one that I think is a skill that definitely exists across both user research and, you know, somebody on, on consumer insight side, but is incredibly important on the user research side is you have to be able to move and motivate your stakeholders. If you are continuously producing reports that sit on the digital shelf and collect digital dust, it is hugely problematic for your organization and your position will be cut. Whereas, you know, on the consumer insight side, it's obviously still important to be able to grab the attention of stakeholders and everyone's constantly talking about how can we make our deliverables more impactful and, you know, insight activation and all of this kind of stuff. And like, that's been a buzzword for a number of years. And obviously it is important storytelling, curation, et cetera, et cetera. But from a user research perspective, if you, if your reports do not do what they need to do in terms of helping people make decisions, the product that you are working on will fail and they will be able to point back to you. Yes, you did the research. Yes, you found that, you know, people weren't able to see the green button because it was too small, but you were not, you know, you failed to kind of make your report compelling enough or failed to raise that flag high enough or whatever it might have been. So, I hear a lot from my friends working client side in user research that it is one of the hardest battles that they fight is trying to get attention and awareness from stakeholders in terms of the issues that they find. That's really interesting. And, you know, I'm, I'm reflecting back to how many reports written 
for insights teams at very large organizations where we make recommendations. And yet they're sort of like, those are great. Thank you. But the insights teams are going to make their own recommendations. So the reports don't have to be as persuasive. They really need to tell a story so that somebody else can make a persuasive argument for whatever recommendations they see. So the insights teams themselves want to have the kind of driving thought leadership. It's not necessarily the researcher that needs to make those strong recommendations unless they've hired a consultative thinker, you know, or a firm that is going to give strategic direction. So I think that's a really interesting nuance to call out that they have to be persuasive in their reporting and findings. That's excellent. Yeah. And I would say it probably varies by the UX maturity of an organization. So I would say an organization that has a lot of you know, user experience maturity is one that is going to value and prioritize, you know, the findings and the outputs from any research. And the ones that are perhaps less mature, and they're still focusing on, oh, shoot, our last two week sprint actually lasted 16 days instead of 14 days. We need to make sure that we put a new process in place to eliminate the old process so that any future processes are better than the current process. Those people are completely not paying attention to what is happening. They're not looking at a PowerPoint. You know, they're very busy on Slack doing all kinds of things or whatever. And so it becomes a kind of place where you have to cut through the noise in a, in a way that I think we don't see as much on the, on the consumer insights side. Yeah, that's such great advice. And I really, I do want to kind of end in this place of advice for listeners. So imagine we have, we have user researchers that are listening and maybe, you know, AI has them a little bit terrified or maybe, you know, like kind of just budget cuts at their organizations has them a little bit terrified. And I don't want anybody listening operating from a stress state, right? So what can we do to be helpful to people who are user researchers listening to help them kind of overcome some of the challenges they're currently facing? What can they do? What are action items they can take to either shore up a skill or develop a new skill or grow some learning? What advice might you have for those researchers? Oh gosh, so many pieces, where to start? <laughs> I would say, this is probably not a piece of advice that would shock anyone who is in the user research community, but I would say one of the things that I like about both Insight Spaces is they both actually do have genuinely really good communities. So I would say get yourself involved with as many different you know spaces in UX as you can. So there's loads of different Slack channels. There's UXPA, there's Epic, which is not specifically for user researchers. It's really for anthropologists, but there are loads of really smart user researchers, particularly who have come over from academia there. People are constantly talking about portfolios and tips and tricks and new methodologies and new suppliers and new tools. So getting yourself in those spaces, following newsletters, things like that, getting yourself at events where you can network and meet people is definitely a big piece of advice. And then I would say the other thing is maybe not shocking, you know, given my background and given Green Book's background is get yourself involved in the market research community because there's actually a whole heck of a lot that we can be teaching each other. There's probably a lot of methodologies where you're sitting there going, I'm not really sure if I should use X or Y. And we've already had that debate in market research. So come on over and we'll tell you which one that it should be, you know, and the same goes in the other direction. There's going to be some things where on the market research side, we're going, ah, we have no idea how to deal with this. So yeah, there's just so much information and so much resource that exists in both communities. So I would say, get yourself out into both of those communities as much as you possibly can. And even if you are somebody who has various different accessibility needs, what's great, especially in the UX community, is that so many of these communities are virtually accessible. So definitely find ways to, to get in touch with people and, and seek a mentor also. I mean, both in market research and user research, but particularly in user research, 
those are some generous people and they will, there are so many people out there just mentoring and giving away a lot of their knowledge and ex- expertise for free. Now be kind, don't inundate them with, with requests, but do keep an eye out for those sort of change makers that are out there in the space and, and, and ask them what, you know, where they would point you tip the domino and then follow the trail. I think there is currently, look at me plugging another organization, but I think UXPA just had a call for applications for mentees right now. I think it is current right now. So I don't know when this episode is going to air, but but look for that. I think that's a great idea. I personally just got a mentor in the content marketing space because I was new to being the head of content. And I'm like, you know what? I You are never too old to gain the value that a mentor can provide for you. So I think that's great advice. Have you had a mentor? Has there been somebody who's been instrumental in your career? Oh my gosh. It's really hard to name one mentor. I mean, I feel like I have been really lucky to learn from so many people over the years. So all the way back from like my first ever market research job, I worked at a tiny little place called the Taylor Research and Consulting Group based in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. And I had two, I worked under two really great people there. One was called Matthias Kretschmer, who I think is still in the industry working at the Knot. It's been a long time since we've had a chat. And the other is Peter Fondoulos, who's recently retired, but I, um, he was working, he was co-founder of um, Hub Entertainment Research, which I'm sure plenty of listeners are aware of. He taught me loads and not just about how to do research and how to be a moderator, which he was very good at both of those things, but also how to deal with clients, you know, how to get, you know, gain their trust, how to be cool under, under pressure. The number of times he had to call me in his office and be like, calm down when I was a junior researcher and getting, you know, flustered by the incoming wave of requests from some senior client somewhere. So, so he really taught me a lot as did Matthias. But yeah, just loads of, and I mean, the the Wire group has been really great for me. Fiona Blades, what a hero. She's an absolute lovely, lovely human being. And every time she speaks, I just eat it up. Um, yeah, just so many. I could probably so many. go on for ages. Yeah. yeah. And I, I think what I love about that also is just never underestimating the influence you might have on a junior employee or somebody who is starting off in their career. So for you listeners, if you are not in that space, share this episode with them. I think it would be gratifying for some of those folks who are just starting in their careers to understand that like every position matters. Every position will teach you something new that you can take to the next one. And no matter where your career path will end up, the people that you meet will be formative in your career beyond any, you know, understanding. Nikki, if I had known when I met you that, you know, we'd be doing this, you know, a couple of years later, like I, I I couldn't have imagined it at the time because we were both running our own shops, right? And here we are now having this kind of an industry conversation. I love it. Things just, just enjoy the ride because man, it's a fun space to be, isn't it? Yes, it is. And totally agree on all of those points. Soak it all up. Enjoy it while you can. This is a, this is a great group. Yeah, that's cool. Anything anything you want to share with us about what's what's new on the horizon for you Nikki? We're we're getting ready to wrap here, so you know, kind of whatever you want to put out there, this is your moment. I feel like the cheekiest thing I could possibly do is to not mention a particular two letters that everyone has been talking about as being what I see on the horizon. It's not on the horizon. It's already here. If you want to ask me what I think is going to happen, then I say, call me back in five minutes because whatever I say now is going to be different five minutes from now. So that's what I'm going to say about that. Otherwise, I'm really looking forward to watching use a researcher's rebound. I think that's going to be, that's going to be a thing that we see 
as tech companies start to stabilize, the economy starts to stabilize and people start to go, right, well, we probably shouldn't have abandoned our, you know, focus on the user experience. Let's get some of those researchers back in here. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll say with that, that's yeah. where I'll leave it. Yeah, I think that's I think that's all good. So for those people that are curious, kind of your take on 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 AI or UX or any other any other acronyms that are out there. Any how, two letters. <laughs> any two letters. What's the best way for people to reach you? Oh gosh, what is the best way? LinkedIn, I guess, would be the best way to reach me. That sounds great. That sounds great. Nikki, I cannot thank you enough for just chatting with me during this time. It's just always good to talk to you and to see your face and to bring some of your energy to our world. I'm so grateful. Thank you for being here. Can I just say that I have just been moderated by one of the world's <laughs> greatest moderators. That's right, ladies and gentlemen, you heard it here first. She might not be moderating anymore, but Karen Lynch, she's the one. Oh, so thank gosh. you very much. Thank it was you. Great. You make me blush. You make me blush, but I appreciate it. I also have had a world of a world of mentors and training, and I never miss an opportunity to learn. So that's my advice for all of you. Just keep learning because it's it's just how you grow in your career and we collectively grow the industry. So again, thank you again, Nikki. I also want to thank Natalie Push, our senior content producer. She is just extraordinary and helps me do what I do and helps Green Book grow as well. So Natalie, thank you for all you're doing. And to our audio editor, James Carlisle, he is what makes us sound better with each episode. So thank you, Jamie, for all you do. And of course, to our listeners, we're so grateful that you are tuning into us and, and taking in this podcast. We welcome your feedback. We're open to feedback. So shoot us an email at any time and we will talk to you next time. So until that point, thank you all. Join Greenbook for the 2024 Insight Innovation Exchange. This global conference series, also known as IIEX, is where connections are made, inspiration is found, and innovative solutions are discovered. With more than 90% of attendees using IIEX Insights to shape strategic business decisions, the return on investment is undeniable. Whether you're in Asia-Pacific, North America, Europe, or Latin America, IIEX is your gateway to the latest market research best practices, tech innovation, and strategies for transporting insights into action. Nurture your career and business with insights from across the globe. And here's a bonus. Use the special code PODCAST to save 20% on general admission for all IIEX events. Visit greenbook.org events today to learn more and register. See you there.